You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Lord, as we do come to the text, we so love and appreciate going through just the word that's been inspired by your Holy Spirit. Just that holy men of God wrote as they were carried along and moved by the Holy Spirit. We know that these words are profitable for us, for correction and doctrine and uh, exhortation and training in all righteousness and equipping us, God. We pray that you would do all those things today as we just go through your word. We're just so in love with you, God, and it's just a, a privilege and a joy to be able to spend time with you in your word here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've, uh, we've looked at chapter 1 where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was preparing to ascend into heaven. But before he did, he told the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Uh, for John truly baptized with water, but Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. And 10 days later, as the disciples were waiting in the upper room with one accord, praying continually, 120 of them, uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. There was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire came upon every one of their head. They began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And uh, just an incredible last two weeks of looking at some, some major... Uh, some major truths and also controversial subjects. And so I encourage you to listen to the last two weeks if you haven't been here as we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. But uh, as the, the early church was there in the upper room and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they began speaking in tongues. Remember that uh, you know, apparently it was loud somehow. They must have gone out of the room because they then met with about 3,000 people outside the temple uh, court area. And uh, th- these people were so curious as to how you know, these men from Galilee were able to speak in their tongues, 17 different languages represented there. And how did these good old boys from northern Israel, you know, learn these other languages and speak them fluently as they're declaring the marvelous works of God? And as there was confusion and as there was curiosity as to what was going on, Peter seized the opportunity uh, to preach the gospel. He sensed the prompting of the Holy Spirit and he opened up his mouth. And last week we looked at the first part of his message, which is in uh, verses 14 through 21 there in Acts chapter 2, where he describes that the things that they were seeing, uh, it was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had been prophesied from the Old Testament. And he expounded upon Joel chapter 2, where Joel says, you know, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He says, that's what you're seeing right now, guys, is the spirit of God is being poured out upon all flesh. And he goes on to say, your, you know, your young men and women will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And then he goes on even farther to just show what that 
end time will look like. It's very descriptive of revelation. It's uh, similar things as we read in Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, things pointing towards the last days of which we're, we're living in now. We're seeing the birth pangs getting harder, the labor pangs getting more frequent and more intense as we see the Lord's, uh, the day of the Lord coming and approaching. And so uh, he, he explains to them what they're seeing is is uh, the Holy Spirit they're prophesied of in Joel. And then that comes to where we're at today as Peter begins to move on and show them Jesus in the Old Testament. It's an awesome thing to to preach Jesus from the Old Testament to Jews. I was able to witness with uh, some Jews in Israel once and to show them from the Old Testament how Jesus was prophesied in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and uh, you know, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, you know, uh, Genesis chapter 20, you know, just all throughout the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. It's an incredible study. And Peter then, uh, he's got about 3,000 at least. We see by the end of the chapter, 3,000 people got saved. So who knows how many people he was actually preaching to. But he uses this opportunity to, to preach Jesus out of the Old Testament. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So we'll pause there because Peter stands up in authority. Now, where did he get this authority? What right did Peter have to be the dude standing up in front of, you know, 3,000 plus people and listen up to me, whatever I have to say, this is, you know, this is the platform right now. Well, obviously that has been given to him by the Lord. You know, the Lord has caused this authority to go forth so that the crowd would understand this guy's got a message that, that we need to hear. And so he says, you know, uh, men of Israel, listen up. And then the first word of his message is Jesus. The first word of his message was Jesus. So he had authority given to him by the Lord, but he also had a priority in his preaching. The priority of his preaching was always Jesus. And that was the case with all of the apostles. You know, it all came down to Jesus. And that's what I always want, whatever I'm teaching about, to be about. It's about Jesus. It's not about wonders or signs or, you know, money or whatever it might be. Status, anything else other than Jesus. That's what it all comes down to. And as his his message goes on here, you know, he says that God, uh, or excuse me, Jesus of Nazareth, what Nazareth, was a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know this. So this attesting of the Lord was upon Jesus. Uh, That word attested also means that Jesus was approved or shown off by God the Father as he demonstrated uh, that he was the Messiah. I mean, have you, have you guys ever shown anything off or shown off in any way? You know, you're just kind of like, hey, look what I can do or whatever, you know. And uh, it, that's exactly, look what he can do. Look at the power that is in him. I mean, you remember when Jesus and the, and the disciples were out on the boat and the winds and the waves were crashing? We were in my mom's yard last Sunday, 
And uh, Russell and I began acting out Bible stories. And so we got two, two uh, long lawn chairs that you would lay out on. And uh, one of those was the boat, you know, and we were in the boat and rocking and rolling, you know, and Lindsay and her sister were in there, you know, I was like, Jesus, help us. You know, Jesus woke up on the front of the boat, you know, little Russell and said, peace, be still, you know, and we said the same as the disciples, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him, you know, and that's what the men and the women, you know, that's what they would say as God attested Jesus to them. Who is this guy? What are these signs? What are these wonders that he's able to do as he's shown off there, as he's demonstrated uh, as the Messiah there uh, by the Lord in Israel? Um, Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and have put to death. And so in this preaching of Peter, he notes the sovereignty of God that it had been, it had been determined throughout the old Testament, you know, that Jesus was going to die for the sins of men. In fact, in revelation, we read of Jesus, that he's the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth, you know, and the old Testament points to that being the case, everything from, you know, Adam and Eve having an animal slain so that their sin could be covered to Isaac being a type of Christ packing the wood up the hill as he was going to be the sacrifice on it. Yet the Lord said, no, don't worry. The Lord will provide himself as the lamb, you know, all throughout the sacrificial system. It was all pointing to Jesus being, you know, being laying his life down on the cross and dying for the sins of men. It was determined that that was going to happen before the foundations of the world. It was no surprise to God. And so while we have the sovereignty of God, we also have, you know, man's free will in scripture. You know, we have the need to pray that the nations will be saved. We have the need to evangelize so that men could be convinced. We have these men here in in verse 23, you know, they chose to take Jesus by lawless hands and to crucify him. You know, they had the choice to do that. And the interesting thing is, is C.S. Lewis puts it this way that, you know, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or man's free will are these two pillars, two pillar doctrines in the Christian faith that we don't fully understand. You know, it's so easy to just land on this side and be a a hyper Calvinist perhaps and say that, you know, God even created people for hell. That's how sovereign he is. Or to go on this end of things and just say, no, God doesn't have a hand in it all. He's just kind of, it's just left up to man to decide what happens. And, you know, but you know, there there's man's free will and God's sovereignty are these two pillars that stretch up to heaven. And CS Lewis said somewhere before the throne of God, they meet somewhere before the throne of God, they meet. And so Peter preaches this. He says, you know, it was determined, but you are the ones that crucified him. In verse 24, uh, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so go figure. The resurrection is one of the main points in the first sermon that was preached After Jesus' ascension. 
Guys, the resurrection is paramount to the Christian faith. We did a huge study on that back, I think it was the beginning of April. You can listen to it online, how the resurrection is the best proved fact in history. It's one of the most essential you know, doctrines of the Christian faith. Because Jesus is alive, that means that he conquered sin, he conquered death for us. And we too will be raised to new life. But the beautiful thing is that Peter owned the resurrection. And you might, as we go through the book of Acts, just have your pen there and maybe put a little R next to every verse that we come across in our next, you know, one year, two years, however however long we're going to be in the book of Acts. Put a little R there. And you'll see in in the epistles, you could put little R's. And you'll have R's everywhere. Because it was essential to our faith. And it is essential. And so I encourage you as a church to own the resurrection. To let it be, you know, paramount in your preaching. We're all preaching somewhere. You know, at work, tell your friends about the resurrection. Ask them what they think about the resurrection. Ask them if they think, is Jesus still dead in Jerusalem today? You know, where's his body? What happened to it? You know, study, listen to that study. But, you know, Peter, you know, he he makes a huge point on the resurrection here as he witnesses to the Jews. But notice he put, you might underline this, that he loosed the pains of death. He loosed the pains of death. Man, I don't know if you're afraid of dying Well, let me tell you this. If you're in Christ, there's no pain in death. There's no sting in death. This 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us, oh, death, where's your sting? There's no sting anymore. There's eternal life now in Christ. Oh, Hades, where's your victory? You have no victory. Even our bodies are going to ascend and be transformed and glorified. Hades has no victory anymore. The, the, uh, the sting of death, the pain of death is gone. I remember, I don't know if you've ever held somebody's hand as they've passed away, but I remember 19 years old standing at my dad's bed as he went to meet Jesus, went to be with Jesus. And I'll tell you one thing, there was such a comfort in knowing that I'll see him again. Just like First, First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us, That we can comfort one another with these words that, you know, we'll see our loved ones that are in Christ. We'll see them again. We'll be with Jesus again. We'll always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. And man, if there's one thing that my family and I reiterated over and over and over again, you know, just about nine years ago, was that I don't know how people who don't have Jesus would survive something like this. Mentally, how could you possibly survive the death of a spouse, the death of a, uh, you know, a loved one? But in Jesus, the pain is taken away. I'm so thankful for that, that the, the pain is gone. But then it also says he, he re- loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It wasn't even possible for him to be held by death. Why is that? Well, because Jesus created life. Jesus is life. He's the giver of life. It's impossible for death because he existed before death. It's impossible for him to be overtaken by it. He's the creator. He's God. 
He's the only one that can conquer sin and death. It was impossible that he should be held by it. I love that phrase there. Verse 25, then he goes on and and quotes another Old Testament prophecy of this. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. And so Peter quotes here Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, an awesome prophecy of the resurrection. There's multiple prophecies of the resurrection in the Old Testament. So it's a beautiful thing that Jesus fulfilled those. It's a chalk up on his confirmed Messiahship uh, side of the tally there. And, um, you know, an incredible encouraging thing here is we all remember Peter before crucifixion time, old foot in the mouth, Peter, you know, we all remember Peter, even after the resurrection, all the disciples confused, wondering what's going on, not expecting the resurrection. Unsure, even with Jesus there at the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus is cooking fish and they were a little, they didn't really know how to act. But the encouraging thing is, is here Peter stepping forward in boldness and all of a sudden he knows the scriptures that point to the resurrection. See, before they had, they didn't get it, they didn't understand, they didn't get what God was doing with his kingdom when it was going to be established. They weren't, you know, applying in their heart the Old Testament prophecies concerning the resurrection. But after spending 40 days with the risen Jesus and having Jesus really explain it all to them, he owns it. He owns it. He knew to go to Psalm chapter 16. You know, and it's just an encouragement because, man, we remember how Jesus put it on the Mount of Olives where he said, don't worry about what you're going to say for that very hour. It's put three different ways in the different gospels. I'll either show you what to say. I'll bring a remembrance of what you should say, or another gospel puts it, I'll say it for you. Man, isn't that encouraging when you step in front of over 3,000 people that are wondering what these tongues are? And I didn't prepare a Bible study, you know, like Rory did last week where, you know, uh, how do you explain the gift of tongues? Because he, he was confident that Jesus's words were true. He wasn't going to worry about what to say. Now that doesn't mean neglect study time. We're also told, Paul tells Timothy, be diligent and show yourself approved a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, he'd known the scriptures, Peter did, but it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost, what to say as he was preaching, as he comes there uh, to Psalm chapter 16 there. And then verses uh, 29 through 32 Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the dead, that his soul would not be left in Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. So Peter just expounds on that, that David obviously wasn't speaking about himself in that psalm. Because, you know, and and he had this awesome ability to be standing very near in Jerusalem to where David's tomb had been known to be. You know, and he was able to say, look, David's saying that he's not going to die, that his his flesh isn't going to see corruption or deterioration. And yet, let's go over to his tomb right now, you know, and let's crack open the coffin or the sarcophagus, you know. And what kind of a macabre picture of David would we have had, you know, a skeleton bones or whatever it might have been in there, you know. Uh, The flesh had seen corruption, Peter says. So David wasn't speaking about himself, but he says there, but David being a prophet prophesied by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he wrote this down that his heir or his seed or his offspring over a thousand years later would be the one to conquer death and to assume his throne, to assume his throne. And so it was a witness, it was a testimony there to the Jews of Jesus being the Messiah. And then in verse 33, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. So, you know, right at the end of verse 32, He says, Jesus has been raised up. We're all witnesses of this. We're eyewitnesses. Jewish law was that if two or more witnesses saw something, then that was declared a fact. And he says, we're all witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And we also resurrect our our witnesses, verse 33, of his ascension into heaven, where he was seated at the right hand of the father. Remember our ascension study that, you know, that, that, Uh, ascension into heaven, a cloud covered Jesus. It's a picture of he was accepted back into his throne. He was accepted back into heaven. His sacrifice was accepted. He had lived a pure, sinless life. The death on the cross, the blood that he shed, his resurrection from the dead, he's he's in victory. And he went home to that awesome homecoming we talked about. And Peter says, we were all witnesses of this. And then now he gets to what's happening today on Pentecost. He says, and and now we've received the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he's poured it out now, and you're witnessing it, and I'm witnessing it. You're seeing it, I'm seeing it. You're hearing it in your tongue, I'm hearing it in some tongue I don't know. But that's what the gift of tongues is. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's a sign to non-believers. And here we're thousands of non-believers that had heard their own language spoken by some Galilean fishermen that had never had uh, an after-school tutorial or an online $39.99 or less, you know, we'll teach you Portuguese. You know, I don't think Portuguese is one of the languages spoken there, but still, you know, they didn't have that, the resources. And here they are speaking it fluently and declaring the wonderful works of God. You're seeing it, we're seeing it. You're witnesses of that. And then in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Therefore, let the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this is awesome. I mean, it's one thing to have Psalm 16 down. And be like, I just, I just know to go to Psalm. I just know to go to Psalm 16. I just know to go to Psalm 16. But the Lord also took him to Psalm 110, another scripture talking about the ascension and the deity of Jesus Christ. You can read about it again in Hebrews chapter one verse eight. The Lord said to my Lord, "Wait a second. Yahweh said to Yahweh." Who's he talking to? He's got some funky split personality. Well, that's not a good way to refer to the Trinity, but. Yes, the father was speaking to the son and saying, sit at my right hand. I'll make your enemies your footstool. He's describing to the Jews how Jesus is God. And then he goes on to say, verse 36, you better all know this. Assuredly, I tell you, God has made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. Now, we want to notice some things here. You might underline in verse 36 that Peter wasn't afraid to get in the crowd's face, even though he'd just seen what they did to Jesus. And he told them, you are the ones that crucified Jesus. You crucified Jesus. It was you. And while the people were in the crowd that probably had some role in the trial and the arrest and the crucifixion, the scourging of Jesus, they probably were out there somewhere. You know how they were, you know, always spying from behind some pillar or something and then throwing their two cents in. But they were probably out there. Yes, guilty of the blood of Jesus. Yes, they were guilty of of crucifying him. But as he speaks to the nation of Israel, the nation was guilty as well. Because none of them recognized the prophecies that this was Jesus. None of them surrendered themselves over to him as the Messiah, as he was attested by God to be so. And they allowed Jesus to be crucified, which was just as bad. Allowing him to be crucified, not standing up and saying, no, wait, look, he's the Messiah. Whoa, what are you talking about, high priest? Whoa, no, look, let's look at the scriptures. He's the Messiah. But everybody stood by and let him be put to death, which God's sovereignty being accomplished there. But they were all guilty of crucifying Jesus. Now, wars have broken out as to who's responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, was it the Romans technically? You know, it was their method of execution. You know, it was a Roman that held the nail. It was a Roman that slammed the hammer. You know, it was a Roman cross. Was it their fault? Yes, it was. Let's blame it on the Romans, you know. Or was it the Jews? Yeah, it's the Jews' fault. It's Israel's fault, you know. But I would boldly say yes to both of those. And I would boldly say it was you. It was you who crucified Jesus. It was me who crucified Jesus. As Isaiah chapter 53 says, he was wounded for your transgressions. He's not talking to me. Don't look at him. He's not talking to me. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities and mine. Guilty as charged. I've got sin. That I needed him to pay for. It was you and it was me who were responsible. I love that song. How deep the father's love for us. You know, in the verse that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Love that song. You know, Rembrandt, the famous painter, has a, he, he painted this painting of the crucifixion scene. And it's, it's at the hour of the day. You know, it's dark, uh, you know, and, and Jesus is hanging on the cross and the soldiers are all around. And you'll have to Google it. You'll have to look it up because it's powerful when you see it. But in this Rembrandt painting of Jesus on the cross, there's a unique figure at the base of the cross holding a hammer, nails, and putting his weight into pitching the cross up. And it's Rembrandt himself. He painted a painting of himself crucifying Jesus because he recognized it was his sin that nailed Jesus there. In a more modern day picture, you know, we have Mel Gibson who produced The Passion of the Christ. And good, bad, or indifferent, there's one thing I, I've heard about this movie that I've always appreciated was that you know, at the scene in the movie where the Roman soldier's hand puts the nail on Jesus's wrist and begins to hammer, Mel Gibson said, that's my role in the movie. I'll hold the nail and I'll pound the hammer because it was me who hung Jesus on the cross. Kind of sobering to think of our lives, huh? Kind of sobering to think of those times that we were in rebellion or those times that we were stiff-necked against the Lord or those times that we just shrugged our shoulders towards sin. It's no big deal. You know, the buzz or the pleasure or the popularity or whatever it might be, it's all worth it, whatever. And then to think back and to think, man, even if it was just one sin that one man committed and everyone else in the world was righteous, Jesus would have still had to come and die so that his blood could be the ransom price for that one person's sin. And you know what? He would have done it with joy. He would have done it with joy. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sobering thing to think of the cost of sin. But there in verse 36, you know, uh, you've crucified And to read the whole verse so we get the full effect. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Man, underline that. He has made him both Lord and Christ. The Greek word Lord, kurios. The Greek word Christ, Christos. He is kurios and he he is Christos. He is God, he is Yahweh, and he is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that the prophets spoke about that would come in the flesh and, and, and uh, through a virgin birth, you know, that would come and lay his life down. That would come with the spirit of the Lord upon him to preach good tidings of glad things that would open the eyes of the blind and, you know, unstop the ears of the death and let the lame man run like a deer. That is the Messiah that was prophesied of in Isaiah. You know, and, and God, you know, he said, it is not robbery, Philippians chapter two. It is not robbery for me to call Jesus God because he is God. Colossians chapter one, verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and he created the world. He created the world. And it's it's affirmed there in Peter's preaching, Jesus the subject, Jesus the priority of his preaching. He is the Lord, and he is the Messiah. He's God, and he's Messiah. 
Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart? In chapter 7, we're going to read about Stephen's preaching. And his preaching is so similar to Peter's. And, and the people, the Jews, the Sanhedrin listening, it says they are cut to the heart and they begin to gnash their teeth. They're convicted. Holy cow, I've just been shown all my sin. I'm guilty of crucifying Jesus. And there's two different ways being cut to the heart can go. They can go this way. Verse 37, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? I love that. You don't see Peter in his preaching give some sort of altar call, you know, and let's call up the piano player now to play some sort of manipulating melody that will really get people, if I really get loud, then I'm coming up there, you know, come up to the altar call, everybody, you know. No, there's nothing like that. He's preaching the gospel. He's talking about Jesus laying down his life and rising from the dead and ascending into heaven as Lord and Christ. And these people are convicted of their sin. They are cut to the heart. And they say, dude, I know you're still preaching, but what am I going to do if I have a cardiac arrest right now and die? I'm going to hell right now. What should I do? What should I do? That's me. I crucified Jesus. What should I do? Oh, no, you're interrupting my friend. Salvation is for after the Bible study. So anyway, no, what should I do? What are we going to do? Or you got, you know, chapter seven of Acts where they're cut to the heart and they gnash at the teeth. They shrug their shoulders against the conviction of the Lord and they stiffen their neck and they don't want to hear about it. And so what do they do? They don't say, what should I do? They grab stones And they kill Stephen with rocks. There's two different ways that hearing about your sin and being cut to the heart, realizing who Jesus is and what he's done for you, there's two different ways that that can go. That cut to the heart can soften you and wound you and you can come before the Lord broken. Or that cut to the heart just... You know, it's like a beasting on a horse's butt, you know, just, ah, you know a horse is bounding across the field. You know, you can, you can respond in wrath and anger. Man, I hope that today, if it's you, that the Lord is, is, if he's touching your heart, if he's cutting your heart, I hope today you respond like this. Rory, what should I do? You know who you are. What should you do? Peter has the answer. Verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How should we respond to this? You know, the first question that they asked was, what is all this stuff and what does it mean? All these tongues. But by the end of the sermon, it was, what should we do about it? And Peter says, repent. Repent. Now you've heard all of the, well, repent means to turn around and go the opposite direction. And repent means to do a 180. And that might be old to you. But let me ask you, have you done it? Have you repented? You know, repent really means literally in the Greek, it means to think differently. So Peter says, what shall we do? Think differently. 
Right now, the way that you're thinking about your sin and the way you're thinking about Jesus, you're just thinking about Jesus like he's some Middle Eastern guru. You know, to them, they were just thinking Jesus of Nazareth, some, uh, you know, some weird miracle worker. He's dead. He's gone. To Prineville today, you think of Jesus, some Middle Eastern guru, prophet guy that, you know, he's really disconnected from anything that I do here in Prineville, Oregon on fair weekend. I mean, really? He's here? Come on. You need to repent of that type of mindset about Jesus. That is not who Jesus is. That is not who Peter preached. Jesus is alive. And he sent his spirit to knock on the door of your heart. That if anyone would hear that knock and open up the door of their heart, Jesus would come into their heart and dine with them. And he with them. Or them with him. But think differently. Reconsider your position of sin, whereas before sin was, you know, pleasurable and it was, you know, just something you did to get that, that buzz or that, you know, temporary happiness. And today you realize that it's sin. First John 1, 9 says to confess that before the Lord and just say, Lord, I see what you see. And one of the things that you're showing me today is that I crucified you. And I want to confess that as sin today. I confess it before you. I see what you see. And then you need to reconsider your view of letting sin continue on in your life the way that it's been continuing. As well as rethinking your esteem of Jesus. How do you esteem Jesus? You've got to rethink all of that. You've got to allow the Lord to set your mind straight. And so, you know, like Jesus says, unless you repent you will perish in your sins. Peter didn't say, join Calvary Chapel and tithe, you know, or buy a bunch of candles and light them, or, you know, do whatever. You know, go wear your holy underwear and go door to door giving magazines out, whatever it might be. That's not what Peter said. Peter said, repent, change your mind about your sin, change your mind about Jesus, confess it all to him, let him cleanse you. That's all the process of repentance there. And then he said, be baptized. <gasps> When we, when we do? Repent and be baptized. And, you know, especially the way that the King James puts it, it, it could be confusing there as it says, uh, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And people begin to think, well, see, you know, you have to be baptized for your sins to be taken away. Well, that word for there in the Greek is the word ice, E-I-S. And it's better translated since. Okay, since. So, be baptized since you have the forgiveness of sins. You know, for Peter, it was never really a separate thing. He wasn't like, well, you know, do you have to be baptized to be saved? No, but why wouldn't you be baptized? You know, why are we even arguing about it? Just, you know, get baptized because you have forgiveness of sins. Do that first public step of obedience in showing the world that, you know what? This old sinner Rory, full of his lusts and you know, rebellions and, you know, addictions and all of this stuff. He is crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, as you go under the water, you know, and risen to new victorious life in Christ. New life. You know, be baptized since you have remission of sins and show the world the new life in the spirit that you have. The new life in Christ that you have. Mark 16, 16, you know, the commission we read last week about speaking in tongues, uh, it, it began with this. 
He who believes and is baptized will be saved. (gasps) See, there it is. You know, you have to be baptized to be saved. Finish the verse. But he who does not believe will be condemned. It's the believing that's the important part. If you don't believe, you'll be condemned. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. It's by grace, totally a free gift, that we're saved. It's by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And man, I know how I am. If I have any little part in a project, I'm proud about it. Yeah, I hammered that nail in on that shed over there 10 years ago. It was pretty tough. I wore a hard hat, you know, or whatever. And, you know, give me some kind of credit here for this project. So even a little thing like baptism, you know, you get, yes, baptism saves you. And I went down into the waters of baptism and I was baptized. And now, you know, in heaven, you know, yes, Lord, I was baptized. Of course, that is one of the couple reasons why I am here. Well, yes, the cross and yes, faith, but also baptism. That's exactly what Galatians is all written about. You know, it's not faith plus anything else. You know, it's, we're saved by grace through believing, through faith. And so, you know, there's this incredible thing. What shall we do? What shall we do? You know, they don't even say, what shall we do to be saved? They're just like, what shall we do? Hey, repent, be baptized. Might as well. You need, yeah, you should do it now. And then there's like a cherry on top of salvation here. There's this awesome, you know, bonus, if you will. He goes on to say, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, verse 38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit, or the promise of the Holy Spirit, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the upon, or the epi in the Greek of the Holy Spirit, or the immersion of the Holy Spirit. So not only will I cleanse you of your sin, you know, and, and, and you know, you sh- as you show yourself to the world that you're a new creation in Christ, and, and I seal you, Ephesians chapter 1, with the Holy Spirit, that's all great, but I'm going to put a cherry on top of your salvation. I'm going to pour myself out upon you and give you power to live for me. All outlive for me. I mean, being saved is awesome. But being saved and living a life for Jesus is ex- extraordinary. I mean, really, it's normal Christianity. And anything less than living your life in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're just missing out. It's subpar. You know, repent, be baptized, and I'll give you the promise of the Holy Spirit. And verse uh, 39, for that promise is to you Everyone out here I'm preaching to in Israel, Peter says, you know, and to your children and all who are afar off. Prineville, Oregon. That's, that's far off, you know. That promise is for you today. You can repent of your sins. You can be baptized. If you want to be baptized today, you come up here. I'm going in the creek with you. We'll do this thing. And... Today, if you want, you can cry out and the Holy Spirit will fall upon you. We're going to have a little time as we close and just, 
you know, we're going to have a time as the elders are up here and you can come up and you can pray for this promise of the Father to come upon you. The power, verse 8 of chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit will come upon you to be a witness. And then just the last few words of verse 39. And as many as the Lord our God will call. Well, am I called? I wonder if I'm called. If you're here today, the Lord has brought you to this place to be called. And I have just sensed today as we're closing, you know, for those of you that are not Christians today and you want to be a Christian, you want to be saved out of your sins, you want to confess your sins to the Lord, you want to be cleansed, you want him to take those sins as far as the east is from the west so that he will remember them no more, which is something we all want. (laughs) And if you want that today, he'll give you that. But, and, and, and you're called today. You're, today you are called for that. But I even believe today there's a call for our church that today the Lord wants to call you guys to ministry. He doesn't just want to call you to ministry, but today he wants to equip you for ministry. And there are a lot of needs that this church has. You're just writing down the list of, of all the needs that we have of the need for servants, the need for children's ministry workers, the needs for helping hands ministry workers, the needs for audiovisual teams, the needs for janitors, the need for disciplers. There are so many ministries that the four of us elders and the couple staff members, we can't do it. You're called today to be a part of what God's doing here in Prineville. And the awesome thing is, is he wants to come upon you and give you power to disciple people. He wants to give you power that you never thought you'd have or ask for to go serve in the nursery or the, you know, kindergartners class or the third through fifth graders. You don't have the power. I don't have the power. Does anybody have the power to serve third through fifth graders? I do not know. But the Holy Spirit can come upon you and give you the power and the giftings. And you're called today. I just sense today as we close, we're going to close with worship. And, you know, I studied, I mean, I was ready to go through verse 47 today. But man, let me, for your own good, it's a whole nother Bible study. And I don't want to rush it. It's so important. It's so key. I just felt like the Lord stopped me in first service really short. We were really short so that we could respond to him in this today. And so today, there's a call for you. If for the first time today, you realize, I crucified Jesus, but he is Lord and Christ, and he's risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, what shall I do? Today, you can repent. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.